Well, I didn't wear my beautiful sport coat to compete uh, with our brother this morning, uh, but hearing that it was like 96 or 98 here up in uh, Claremont, I, I thought I would skip the coat and uh, come a little bit more comfortable. It is Sunday night, after all. But good to see you all. Tucked into First uh, Peter chapter 2, in an exhortation from uh, Peter to the servants in the congregation, is one of the most beautiful expressions of how the Lord has suffered to save us. We'd almost read right past it if we were saying, well, here are his instructions to one group and then instructions to another group, and I'm not exactly a servant, so this doesn't really apply to me. But actually, the whole concept of suffering unjustly, meaning that someone is harming you when you do not deserve it, is very relevant to us, and particularly why he says it's of value. Now, most of us would say, me being mistreated when I don't deserve it, could not in any way bear fruit. But actually, uh, his argument is the reason why God would let us suffer, even when we don't deserve it, is because of what it should produce in us regarding the empathy that he wishes to develop within us in comparison to what Christ has done for us. Let me read the passage, and then we'll go through it more slowly and understand uh, what he's seeking to tell us. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. 1 Peter 2, 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit? Is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps quoting Isaiah 53, 9, who committed no sin, no was, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here in America, we're not supposed to suffer. We have drugs for that. We have diversions for that. We have all kinds of distractions so you don't have to pay attention as to why you feel so miserable. But biblically, 
suffering is allowed in our lives, even if it is not deserved, because it bears fruit in our lives, developing within us empathy for how Christ was treated. He didn't deserve to be treated the way he was. He was innocent, sinless, and yet rejected and violently killed. And God used that opportunity to pour out his wrath on our sins upon his son instead, making propitiation, satisfying, extinguishing his wrath towards us and forgiving us for the sins that we have committed against him. Verse 18, it starts out referring that this is to servants. It's not the word for slaves. That's a different word. Slaves work for nothing. They're actually owned by someone else. These are servants who are likely household or domestic servants. In my home growing up, we didn't have servants at all. In fact, we kids were the servants. We were taught that uh, we're going to do the chores around the house. We're going to clean the whole house. I can remember watching my older sister vacuum the house, and whereas uh, dusting wasn't very interesting to me, the vacuum cleaner seemed cool. So at age nine, I asked my mother, can you teach me to vacuum? And till this day, I still am the one who vacuums because it's cool. It has a machine and everything that does that for you. Going to Bolivia, where my wife was reared, uh, I had my first experience at working with domestic servants. Now, here in America, as close as we get to that is if we're staying in a hotel or someone, something like that, and someone else uh, changes the sheets for us and brings us clean towels. Or we can remember back to when we were 16 and had our first job, we were in food service, and uh, basically we're servants to the people who were coming in for food. Uh, people who wait on our tables, we sometimes uh, consider them servants, but often servants are almost invisible other than what they do for us. We hardly pay attention to them much, just expecting that they will get things done for us. Uh, almost as if, uh, you know, there's a washing machine for that or a dryer for that. Or we, we almost feel like, well, there's a person for that. Writing to servants, he says, be submissive to your masters with all fear. And the fear is not towards the master. The fear is toward the ultimate master, God himself, because God is watching how we treat other people. So if you thought about the last time you were standing in a fast food line and were kind of uh, short uh, with the short order clerk, uh, you might uh, wonder, God is watching how I treat other people. Or if you're in a restaurant and a waitress is coming to serve you at the table and you're a little short with a waitress. Remember, God is watching how you treat people who are in the service industry. He says, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. That word translated harsh is actually scoliosis, where we get the whole concept of having a bent or curved spine. Some of you have bosses who are bent and almost seem to take joy at making life miserable for you. He says, no, we as believers 
are to be submissive to our leaders, our masters, our bosses, not only when they're good and gentle, but also when they're harsh. And you'd say, why? Well, partly for the testimony, but there's also a character development that he's seeking to work in us. Verse 19, for this is commendable. It's actually the word for grace. You could actually say, for this is grace. Just as we were given grace, he asks us to give grace back to others. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And so he's, his main point is those of us who feel like we're being unjustly treated and that we're suffering wrongfully and we're aware that God knows about this and he's giving us exhortations as to what God would seek to develop within our character the attitudes uh, that he's seeking to draw out the perspective uh, that he's hoping uh, for us to gain because we're much more aware of how badly we're suffering when it's happening to us unjustly. Now, some people get what they deserve. And my kids, when I've warned them in advance that what they're about to do is not permitted, and they do it anyway, when I punish them, they're getting what they deserve. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Yes, uh, when my kids were young, I spanked them. But we usually use more creative methods, uh, such as push-ups uh, with the boys. With little kids, sometimes they just mouth off at the table, and you were saying that's not a huge infraction, but neither is that tolerable. And I don't know how I came up with the idea, but I said, go put your nose on the refrigerator, put your hands behind your back, and close your eyes until you repent. And it's not necessarily painful. So they go over to the refrigerator, put their hands behind their backs, close their eyes, and have to touch their nose to the refrigerator and hold it there until I feel like they're ready to repent. It works like a charm. It is so fast. They don't want to stand there against the refrigerator with their nose touching. They want to repent, and they're saying, like, okay, okay, what I did was wrong. I, I'm ready, you know, uh, let's get this over with. I, I don't want to uh, be punished anymore. When we're wrong, we deserve punishment. But the context is about what if we didn't do anything wrong, and yet we're punished. And sometimes, we had five kids, sometimes we accidentally punish the wrong person. There'd been a fight, a scuffle, we break up the scuffle, we grab one of them, we start punishing one of them, and it's like, I'm the innocent one. <laughs> it wasn't me, I didn't start it. He says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And you would say, if there was nothing better that we would learn out of this, well, at least God knows I'm innocent. But there's much more that he wants us to develop in this. He actually wants to shape our perspective, even shape our character, because he wants us to develop empathy for what Christ has done for us by respectfully submitting to undeserved suffering, God says there's favor in that because you are understanding the concept of grace. You're understanding 
God can minister to me even in my suffering. And frankly, I didn't deserve this. I should learn to show grace to other people because I certainly don't want to mistreat people. And to show other people grace, we're glorifying God and earning his commendation. Verse 21, for this you were called, in other words, a calling for believers, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. The word example is a very interesting word. It literally means what the student reproduces. When I grew up here in America, we actually had textbooks, and so we would just refer to the textbooks. My wife was telling me when she was growing up in Bolivia that they didn't have textbooks. And so the teacher would dictate to you, and you would write down what the teacher told you to write down. In the classroom, you wrote in pencil, but you also had a clean notebook that when you went home, you recopied your notes in ink. And then you'd turn in that clean notebook with the ink writing for her to evaluate the next day. The term here, leaving us an example, is saying that we as students are supposed to learn our lesson well and follow in Jesus Christ's steps. We're called to emulate Christ's character and conduct, which means that if God lets us suffer, even when we're innocent, that he's doing this to teach us character, to develop within us an empathy for what Christ has done for us. The rest of the passage, and this is what drew me to this passage, is a beautiful description of the atonement for our sins, a beautiful description of how Christ suffered unjustly to pay for our sins. He begins by quoting from the servant song in Isaiah 53. This is verse 9. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Uh, he's saying he was innocent. He should not have been treated the way he was. You may remember, if you think deeply about how he was arrested wrongly, how he was tried with monkey trials in the middle of the night that were illegal, how they were beating him, how they struck him, how they hit him over the head with reeds, how they placed a crown of thorns on his head and dressed him up like he were a king and punched him and made fun of him, how he was scourged and eventually given over for crucifixion, all though he was innocent. Years ago, when uh, that movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, I saw it. I've only seen it once in my life, and I never want to see it again. It was horrific because Hollywood was trying to portray how great his suffering was. I was at Emmaus at the time, and we have a bunch of theologians there, and so it's very interesting to talk shop with each other about things that we have seen, and most of us had seen the movie, and we were talking about it. And my good friend Dave Glock, if you remember him, was saying, yeah, that was offensive, and yeah, that was hard to watch, but actually, when I sit during the breaking of bread, and we read these passages, and I think through what he had to endure, in my mind's imagination, it was much worse than the movie. 
And it really makes you think deeply. If there's a movie you saw where you say, I never want to see anything like that again, that was horrific. And then to say, but it was much worse than that, that really wakes you up to the thought that he was innocent. He did not deserve this, and yet he lovingly did this for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin, see his innocence, to be sin for us, meaning that God placed our sin, our debt, our penalty upon him, and he bore what we should have borne that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Again, hear that? He is innocent. He never sinned. He suffered temptations. In fact, he suffered them in all the same classes and characteristics that we suffer temptation. Yet he didn't give in. He didn't sin. He was innocent. 1 John 3, 5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The Bible is very clear he is innocent. Then why did he suffer? Verse 23, he's a perfect example of patient submission to unjust suffering. Verse 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Have you ever snapped back at someone that snapped at you? Have you ever given it right back to them? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He gave it over to God the Father to say, God will judge properly. Romans 12, 19 and 20. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Could Jesus have called down that legion of angels? Could he have come down for the cross? When I was a young kid listening to expositions on the crucifixion scene and was hearing people call for him to come down, I was rooting for him to come down. I wanted him to come down off the cross. I wanted angels to come and beat up everybody. It wasn't until I grew older that I realized that would have ruined everything. I need forgiveness for my sin. I need him to pay for my sin, to pay for my own sin would destroy me. I'd be separated from God forever. I need Christ to suffer on my behalf. He can't come down. And yet, do you remember what he said about the people who were doing this to him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. In the original language, our sins comes first in the sentence. It's written that way on purpose so that we know where the emphasis lies. It's as if in our way of parlance, we're underlining it. 
So we should read it this way. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes, it's referring to his scourging, by whose scourging you were healed. That's quoting from Isaiah 53.5. It's written in the past tense, referring to our salvation. It's a picture of how he paid for our salvation through his willingness to be made sin on our behalf. The exhortation coming out of this is that Christ's death on our behalf should make us free from both the penalty and the power of sin so that we should not go on sinning, but we should be changed people. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And folks, I've met people whose favorite verse in the Bible, if you listen to their theology, is that, to say, because of grace, I get to sin and get away with it. He's, they're not reading this correctly. He says, absolutely no way. Of course not. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He doesn't want us to go back to sin. Sin is what put him on the cross. Why would we want to take advantage of his grace? Verse 13 of Romans 6, don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What Peter is arguing here is that we shouldn't say, woe is me, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this when I'm mistreated, when I suffer, even if I'm innocent. And you would say, well, what possible good could come out of being innocent and suffering anyway? Why would God allow that to happen to me? His argument here is, do you know what happened to Christ? Are you developing empathy for what happened to Christ? Because that would change your demeanor, your perspective completely. My wife and I have completely uh, different abilities when it comes to empathy. My empathy stops at the cognitive part, the intellectual part, the ability to understand what that would be like. And so I can feel intellectually what it must be like for you and what it must be like for Christ. My wife has the capability of affective empathy, which means she actually emotionally feels it. We might even say in her gut. It's, it's not just in her mind, it's in her body, it's in her feelings, it's in the way she feels emotionally about this. In most of us, I would take from Peter's exhortation, have not learned to develop enough 
understanding either intellectually, theologically, or emotionally and in feeling in our gut what it was like for Christ as an innocent person, for the Son of God himself to be so rejected, so mistreated, and to die in my place on the cross. The more I think about it, the more it quiets my soul when I feel like the injustice I face or the mistreatment I've experienced or, or the suffering that I endure, I should want people to feel sorry for me. No, nothing compared to what my Savior has done for me. It completely awakens me to sympathy, to compassion, to say, I get it. I understand what it was like for you in some small sense to suffer so unjustly. Many of us need to spend much more time thinking long and deep about Christ's suffering on our behalf. We have a very keen sense, and we're aware that we have been wronged personally. But have we appreciated the mistreatment Christ endured on our behalf? Verse 25 says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice that he is guiding us like a shepherd. He is managing us like an overseer. He is developing our souls, our character, our ability to love and serve him. And it changes everything when we think deeply on what he has done for us. Peter brought up the servant song from Isaiah. It's a description of what the Messiah will be like. It's the whole section that the Jewish leadership had completely thrown away and not paid attention to. And it's much of the reason of why they didn't recognize him as the Messiah when he came. They were looking for a conquering victor. They were not looking for a suffering servant. And when they didn't understand, they just read right past it. I want to read through the servant song. It begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and goes all the way through 53. But I'm going to read it from an unusual translation. This translation is in more modern English. And it's a translation that particularly takes the images of how he is suffering, and it speaks of physical suffering uh, as if it were uh, an illness uh, that is killing us. And it speaks of how he has met our needs, and it uses the picture of this illness that is killing us, that is giving us life now because of how he has taken that upon himself. I'm reading from the New English Translation, the Net Bible, as we call it, starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. 
just as many were horrified by the sight of you. He was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer looked human. So now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something that they had not heard about. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well because of his wounds we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us has strayed off his own path. But the Lord has caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of living because of the rebellion of his own people. He was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He'll be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. Our culture, even more so now that we have social media where we can get each other all excited about everything, loves the pity party, loves to say, woe is me. Can you believe what's happening to me? Can you feel for me, how I am suffering, though I don't deserve it. 
it is highly instructive to us in the culture in which Peter writes to servants who have masters that literally beat them at times to say, I want you to exemplify Christ and show grace to people who treat you wrongly. That's a high request. At first reading, we would say, like, but they don't deserve it, and I wouldn't have the power to do that. But if we come to understand why he can ask something like that of us, that we give grace back to a person who doesn't deserve us, deserve it, to give grace back to a person who has mistreated us. What we're doing is showing Christ's work in us, meaning that we've actually learned what it meant for him when he is the innocent person took our place and died paying for our sins. Now we're becoming grateful. And now we're saying, I don't deserve to be saved. And now we're saying, you've placed love in my heart. And you're asking me to honor you by giving grace to people who don't deserve it? Remember the story Jesus told about the man who was forgiven of an astronomical debt he couldn't pay and went out and wrung the neck of a person who owned him a owed him a pittance in comparison. He got turned in, and the master became very angry, and he got punished for it. It teaches us a huge lesson where we need to understand how large a debt we had that God forgave. It will produce within us, in the work of the Holy Spirit, a Christ-like character that wants to give grace to people who don't deserve it. Because we've learned grace from Christ. Most of us don't feel like servants, but what was taught by Peter to these servants ought to be taught to all of us. We need to humble ourselves and in gratitude for the grace that was given to us, show this kind of grace to others and show Christ-likeness to others. They may have treated us poorly, Let's us treat them the way Christ has treated us. Father, we come before you and say, this is too much for us. This seems impossible. And yet, you certainly changed Peter. Uh, he was brave when he wasn't really brave at all. He had a lot of bravado, but he couldn't back it up. He failed you, was humbled. Yet in grace you restored him. You even told him how he would die. He knew he'd die a martyr's death. So for 30 years, he had an opportunity to serve you. And with great wisdom and insight, he exhorts his readers to understand what it means to truly understand and truly appreciate Christ's suffering and what it means to us that we don't cling to the injustices of how we were treated, but we need to show Christ-like love. As Christ said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Empower us by your Spirit 
to exemplify this kind of Christ-likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.